Welcome to the Tuesday Theology edition of the Scottsdale Podcast. At Scottsdale, one of our core values is studying God's Word. So through this theology class, our goal is to equip our people with the right knowledge of God. Enjoy, and we hope that you grow in your knowledge of God and application of His Word. So we want to welcome you guys again to our Tuesday Theology. If you're with us online, we're grateful that you continue to join us each and every week uh, to walk through uh, Wayne Grudem's Bible Doctrine and uh, our theology class. I hope that you guys had a great, uh, a great Passion Week last week and uh, were able to enjoy some of the opportunities we had here in the life of the church, whether it was on Thursday night. How many of y'all were here Thursday night? Okay, good many. Yeah, okay, good, yeah. He wasn't sure. I'm like, you weren't sure? Is that what it was? <laughs> I'm sure. Was I here Thursday night or not? Yeah. Uh, sometimes I have the same feeling. <laughs> sometimes it all runs together for me because we're here so much. I'm like, I don't know if I was there. For, I'm pretty sure I was. I'm just going to raise my hand anyways. I'm assuming I was there for that. So uh, what about Saturday? How many of you guys were here Saturday for Spring Fling? We had nearly, we had over 2,000 people on our campus for, for Spring Fling. M- many of them, uh, I don't know if most of them is the case, but many of them, uh, are not here on a regular basis on Sunday. Um, so we had a great opportunity to minister to our community. And then Sunday, how many of you guys were here Sunday? Sunday? All right, fantastic, yeah. Again, about 2,000 people we had in uh, our four services. So the Lord was very gracious to us in, uh, in strengthening everybody that was a part of that and uh, allowing our church body to see the great benefit of uh, reaching into our community uh, and, and being a blessing to them and then gathering together to worship uh, our risen Savior. So tonight we are going to, we're going to talk about two different chapters. So I hope that you guys are able to read both chapters. Um, And I was uh, mentioning to somebody that these two chapters, the baptism and the Lord's Supper, um, have so many variations. I guess variations, maybe not the best word, but um, have a, a wide variety of application in different churches and denominations. And we see this across whenever you think even about denominations that we have, have, some of you guys have been a part of, that the traditions are different uh, related to baptism and the Lord's Supper. And so tonight we're going to talk about uh, these two. Um, We're going to start with baptism. Um, And this is uh, one of the two ceremonies that Jesus commanded to be performed in the church. Um, But we're going to talk just just briefly about the two words that Wayne Grudem brought up in, uh, in the beginning. Uh, the one was sacraments. So um, sacraments, which is kind of why they have this conversation, I guess is a, a good word, or argument. I don't know. I don't really like that, that word argument, but uh, disagreement may be a good word to use. Um, why some Protestant churches do not use the word sacrament whenever they talk about these two ceremonies, because of the, the Catholic view of what a sacrament does. So what the purpose or the, the reason for a sacrament is, and which is what Grudem talks about, that a sacrament uh, in, in themselves actually convey grace to people without requiring faith from the persons participating in them. So that is to say that uh, in Catholicism, sacrament, someone can receive grace or grace can be conveyed to them, given to them uh, in a, a redeeming uh, sort of way without them actually exercising any faith uh, in, in trusting Christ as it relates to that. So they can be baptized, they can receive the, the Lord's Supper without there actually being any uh, faith involved in it. It conveys grace to people. As opposed to um, what Baptists and many Protestants deal with called ordinances. Um, so they use the word ordinances because baptism and the Lord's Supper were ordained by Christ, were they given 
uh, as uh, a direction. So, so Christ gives them, uh, rather than giving grace, they are given to us to, um, to celebrate and to remember and to symbolize uh, what God has done. So I'm not, and I think Grudem has a good point there for us that we don't have to argue about whether we're going to use sacraments or ordinances if we know what we're talking about uh, whenever we're dealing with it, right? So we don't have to get into kind of more sidebar arguments than are already evident in the world. Um, if we know whenever we talk about sacraments, we're talking about uh, the ordinances. Uh, we know that in, in our church life, we're not talking about conveying grace. Um, but if you're talking to somebody who is Catholic, it might be helpful just to to give the differences as to what you believe about the ordinances um, in relation to that. So as he says, there are uh, Protestants such as those in the Anglican, Lutheran, and Reformed traditions who have been willing to use the word sacraments to refer to the baptism and the Lord's Supper without endorsing the Roman Catholic position. Um, Again, he says that um, since Protestants can use both words, as long as we understand and explain what we clearly mean, the argument isn't really over doctrine, but over the meaning of an English word. So what, what is the English word that we're trying to use here? Um, so as long as we're willing to explain what we mean, then there's not a reason that we couldn't use either. Okay, so um, I'll probably stick with ordinances. I think I'm most comfortable sticking with ordinances because that's the way that we describe them here um, as having been instituted or ordained by Christ. So um, I'm not going to be as free as Grudem is with interchanging sacrament and ordinance here today. So um, we are going to uh, jump into this as it relates, because we have a lot of uh, information to cover tonight. Uh, first, we'll just deal with the mode and the meaning of baptism. Uh, if you've been through our Membership Matters class, which pretty much all of you guys have been through, we talk about this uh, in our Membership Matters class, uh, the mode and meaning of baptism. So the mode, uh, the person being baptized was immersed or put completely under the water, and then brought back up again. So this is the, the mode uh, in which we see baptism carried out in the New Testament. Um, in in uh, the evidence we see first is in the Greek word, uh, whenever we talk about baptism. Um, baptizo means to plunge, to dip, or to immerse something in water. Uh, so this is commonly recognized in the standard meaning of the, this word, in Greek literature, so there's not a lot of uh, disagreement as to the fact that that's what this word actually means whenever we talk about it in, uh, in the literal uh, Greek words. The second is not just the word itself, but the sense of the word. So the, the implication of the word or the, the reasoning behind it, the sense of the word immerse is appropriate and probably required for the word in several New Testament passages. So whenever we see in uh, Mark 1, Five, uh, where people were baptized by John in the Jordan River. Um, the Greek text, as Grudem talks about, it is not beside or by or near the river, but it is in the river. Uh, we also see in Mark 1.10 uh, that he came up out of the water. Um, this specified in the Greek that he came out of the water, not that he came away from it, um, but that he came out of it. Uh, we also see this in John 3.23, where it talks about um, John, Bab- John the Baptist was baptizing at Anon near Salim because there was much water there. And whenever we think, kind of the, the point that Grudem brings out is um, it wouldn't take much water, theoretically, to sprinkle people or to pour water over people. But for them to be baptized or fully immersed, it would take significant body of water to be able to actually accomplish uh, that. So you have the, 
the word itself, the sense of the word, immerse, and then third, the symbolism uh, that it represents, the symbolism of union with Christ in his death, burial, and resurrection seems to require baptism by immersion. We see this in Romans chapter 6. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We are buried therefore with him by baptism into death, so that as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in the newness of life. And also in Colossians chapter 2, You were buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead. So this is clearly symbolized um, in baptism by immersion. So when you think about the, the candidate, the person that is coming for baptism, when they go down into the water, it is a picture of going into a grave and being buried. And coming up out of the water is a picture of being raised with Christ to walk in newness of life. So baptism very clearly pictures death to one's old way of life and rising to a new kind of life in Christ. Uh, It's a very uh, clear picture. Um, Baptism by sprinkling or pouring simply does not capture this symbolism. Uh, Grudem does talk about the reality of of cleansing and and what that could look look like, Um, washing away of sins. And he also makes the point that both washing and death and resurrection uh, with Christ are symbolized in uh, being baptized by immersion. Even the washing, he says, is much more effectively symbolized by immersion than by sprinkling or pouring. And death and resurrection with Christ are symbolized only by immersion, not at all by sprinkling or pouring. He talks also in there about uh, the positive meaning of baptism, because we, we're, we're kind of getting into the things where we disagree, at least in part, where we're trying to see what the symbolism and what the picture is. Uh, in all the discussion, I think this is a really good point for us to remember um, that it's easy for Christians to lose sight of the significance and beauty of baptism and to disregard the tremendous blessing that accompanies the ceremony, the amazing truths of dying and rising with Christ, and of having our sins washed away are truths of momentous and eternal proportion and ought to be an occasion for giving great glory and praise to God. It is a great picture for us whenever we think about a baptism on a Sunday morning. When you think about what, uh, what the congregation sees as a person uh, is baptized um, is a picture of what it means to go from death to life. We don't say that they are going from death to life. We say that's something that's already happened. Right? They've already been regenerated. They've already been justified. They've already, uh, they, are, they are already in the process of being sanctified. But it is a picture of what God has done uh, in their lives. And it is a testimony to them dying and rising from the dead in Christ. Uh, and so it's a great gospel picture to those who are watching. So non-believers that are in our church on a Sunday can see this is what it means to be a Christian. It means to die to ourselves uh, in Christ and be raised with him to walk in newness of life. So it's a, an ordinance that is, that is pictured for us, and it's also uh, proclamative in that way, in that sense that it is showing uh, what a believer is in Christ. Okay? So that's kind of the, the, the piece that he deals with on the mode and the meaning. Um, Subjects of baptism. So here uh, at Scotts Hill and um, Grudem's um, book would hold to a position of believer's baptism uh, since it holds that only those who themselves believed in Christ or uh, more precisely those who have been given reasonable evidence of believing in Christ should be baptized. So we practice believer's baptism here at Scotts Hill. So it's only people that have made 
a, uh, a profession of faith in Christ. And in some way, we can see evidence of that. Again, somebody that has become a believer relatively recently may not have the same fruit in their lives that you guys have. Right? Some of you have been believers for, for many, many years, you know, multiple decades. And so your life is going to look different than somebody who became a believer you know, three weeks ago. But they may be coming and saying, no, my life is completely changed. And I know that this is the next step of faith to be baptized, to show this uh, as a public profession. So um, we, we take them on their profession of faith. But there is a, a reasonable evidence of believing in Christ. Uh, and they, they, in that sense, um, being baptized. So just as you guys uh, maybe ask the question, how do you guys do that? How do you kind of find that out? This is just church information for you guys. Uh, we, that anybody that comes for baptism meets with one of our pastors, um, and we walk through with them what that means, talk with them about their testimony of conversion, um, ask them about you know, how God has changed their lives from the time that they became a believer until now, so that we know, at least from our estimation, um, that God has done a regenerating work in their hearts and that they've been converted to Christ. So that's, those are some of the steps that we, that we take in the life of our church to, uh, to guard that, to protect um, and to make sure that we're proclaiming accurately um, that baptism service. Um, we also see, as it relates to this, um, the argument from the New Testament narrative passages on baptism. So the narrative examples of those who were baptized suggest that baptism was administered only to those who gave a believable profession of faith. We see this in Acts 2.41, those who received his word were baptized. It, it, uh, the text specifies that baptism was administered to those who received his word, so that those who heard and received it uh, in a believing way and trusted Christ for salvation. We also see the same in Acts 8.12, when they believed Philip as he preached good news about the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ. They were baptized, both men and women. And this is a good reminder for us that baptism is not for a particular gender. It's for anyone who trusts in Christ. Okay, so uh, we see that, that God has opened up that way and that all who believe in Jesus, men, women, boys, girls, uh, trusted in Christ are uh, candidates for baptism. Uh, we also see this as it relates to Peter's uh, preaching in, uh, to Cornelius and his household. And, and what I think Grudem does a great job um, giving a kind of a, uh, a trajectory of baptism, right? So he starts in, uh, while Peter was preaching, in chapter 10, uh, the Holy Spirit fell on all who heard the word, and Peter and his companions heard them speaking in tongues and extolling God. Peter's response was that baptism is appropriate for those who have received the regenerating work of the Holy Spirit. He asked the question, can anyone forbid water for baptizing these people who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? And then from there, Peter commanded them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. The point of these passages is that baptism is appropriately given to those who have received the gospel and trusted in Christ for salvation. Okay, so this is a, a good working, um, working picture, description of, of how God has worked and we see evidence in the New Testament church. We also have uh, the argument from the meaning of baptism. Okay, so a second consideration that argues for believers' baptism follows from the meaning of baptism. And that is, it is an outward symbol of beginning the Christian life, which should only be given to those who show evidence of having begun the Christian life, right? Kind of makes sense that, that the, the symbol of having begun the Christian life would be uh, displayed by those whose lives show that they've actually begun the Christian life and not people who haven't begun the Christian life. 
We see this in Galatians 3, 27. As many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. So Paul assumes that baptism is the outward sign of inward regeneration. It's a, it's a picture of what God's already done on the inside um, as it relates to what we're seeing uh, on the outward sign. Uh, Grudem makes a couple of comments as it relates to, to infant baptism. We'll, we'll talk about that in just a minute as we get to the alternatives. Um, he does make the point for, uh, for infants, they would not have come to saving faith or given evidence of regeneration. And therefore, um, this would not be true of them, um, that it is an outward symbol of beginning the Christian life because they would not have yet been able to make a credible profession of faith in Jesus Christ. Um, we also see uh, in the Romans 6 passage that we've looked at, do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ were baptized into his death? We are buried therefore with him by baptism into death. He makes some considerations as it relates to infants there as well. Um, but we have a very clear picture of, of Paul's meaning uh, whenever he's dealing with people who have been baptized, that it is for those who have taken that step of faith. Grudem also gives us some alternatives to this, uh, to this picture. Alternative one is the Roman Catholic view. Uh, we've talked briefly about that in the beginning here, um, but this is, uh, you've heard the term christening, um, is, a, is a practice that believes that baptism is necessary for salvation and that the act of baptism itself causes regeneration. Therefore, uh, in this view, baptism is a means whereby the church bestows saving grace on people. Uh, and it is kind of a, a channel of saving grace. And if so, it should be given to all people. This is why. Um, I'm going to read the quote that he has in the book from Ludwig Ott. Um, in his Fundamentals of the Catholic Dogma, explains that through the sacrament of baptism, a person is spiritually reborn. The faith, and this is why they would baptize infants, um, the faith infants cannot exercise saving faith themselves. The Roman Catholic te Church teaches that the baptism of infants is valid because the faith which infants lack is replaced by the faith of the church. This is why, uh, in many ways, when you think about uh, Catholic missions in history, uh, how so many people you know, from indigenous tribes and things like that could be converted to Catholicism and people could say they were saved because all they would do is, is baptize them, right? There wasn't a profession of faith, a turning from their life. They just baptized everyone, said everybody became a Catholic and that they were all saved. Yet there was no evidence of regenerating faith. It was just, we're conferring grace upon you as long as you do this, or this sacrament. We're giving you grace. Whatever you don't have, the church is going to make up for that in some way. So um, we see this as the, these sacraments work apart from faith, uh, the faith of people participating in them. Um, and so we see that they believe that, that the Catholic Church teaches and believes that, um, that baptism would confer grace on infants who do not even have the ability to exercise faith. And the way that they talk about this is by uh, using the word ex opere operato. It is, it is by the work performed. Um, that is, the sacraments work in virtue of the, uh, of the actual activity done, and the power of the sacraments does not depend on any subjective attitude of faith in the people participating in them. Okay, so the power is in the sacrament, not in 
trusting, trusting or having actual uh, exercise faith, okay? So that's, baptism is a, a means of saving grace, okay? So it's not faith that saves, it's the act of baptism that would be saving and regenerating, okay? You guys with me on at least understanding that or like kind of understanding that? Um, okay, so this is one of the, this is one of the, as you read in the book, um, this, is, this is one of the reasons that the Reformation happened. Um, so Martin Luther had a great concern um, to teach that salvation does depend on faith alone, not faith plus works. But if baptism and participating in the other sacraments are necessary for salvation, because they are necessary for receiving saving grace. You see, there's a connection here. Like you have to do the works in order to have the grace. Uh, it's not that you're saved by grace through faith, it's you're saved by faith, plus you gotta do all the extra sacraments to ensure that you have the grace that they convey to you, that they give to you, okay? So it's a, it's a both and. Um, in contrast, whenever we see the New Testament message on justification by faith alone in, in Ephesians 2, by grace you have been saved through faith, that it's not your own doing, it's the gift of God, not because of works, lest any man should boast, or uh, Romans 6.23 that says that it is the free gift of God, it is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Um, we see this as uh, contrary to what the Roman Catholic Church teaches, um, if, if, in fact, they argue that baptism is necessary for salvation, it is even similar to the argument that Paul is refuting in the church in Galatia, where they are trying to add works or add things, add circumcision in this case, or in that case, to be necessary for salvation. Paul reminded them that those who would require additional works uh, for someone to become a Christian are preaching a different gospel and not the gospel of God's grace. So we have the, the, um, the Catholic view where it conveys grace, um, but we also have a, a different alternative view, which is the Protestant Pado-Baptist view. The Protestant Pado-Baptist view. So this view would argue that baptism is rightly administered uh, to all infant children of believing parents. Baptism is rightly administered to all infant children of believing parents. So this view is common um, in many Protestant groups, especially Presbyterianism and Reformed churches. Um, in fact, the Westminster Confession deals with this as part of their confession of faith uh, in, in paedo-baptism. Um, this view is sometimes known as the covenant argument for paedo-baptism, it is called a covenant argument because it depends on seeing infants born to believers as part of the covenant community of God's people. Uh, the word paedo-baptism means the practice of baptizing infants. So whenever you kind of break the word into two, uh, we know what baptism means, right? So it means baptism. Uh, and the paedo part is, is child, right? So paedo, child, baptism, okay? Um, derived from the Greek word for Child, so it's it's child baptism, um, more specifically infant baptism. Um, this argument supposes that uh, infants of believers should be baptized um, as part of the community of faith, and there are evidences. Right? They give arguments. It's not just kind of let's 
toss something up into the air and see if it sticks. They, they do have reasons for why they believe this. First, uh, if it is a sign of a covenant, uh, infants were circumcised in the Old Covenant. So in the Old Testament, circumcision was the outward sign of entrance into the covenant community or the community of God's people. Circumcision was administered to all Israelite males who were eight days old. Okay, so this is a sign of the covenant. Um, Second would be that baptism is parallel to circumcision. The outward sign of entrance into the covenant community is baptism. Therefore, baptism in the New Testament is the New Testament counterpart to circumcision. Um, It follows that baptism should be administered, according to this view, to all infants, children of believing parents. To deny them this benefit is to deprive them of the privilege and benefit that is rightly theirs, um, the sign of belonging to the covenant community. And then also the third is household baptisms. Um, Really, it comes down to the, how do you explain all the households that got baptized in the New Testament? If they probably had children there, right? They're probably infants there. So if their whole household got baptized, then surely infants were part of that. And so uh, there's there's um, the ideal that there's evidence um, that because infants were probably part of the families, that they were that they were probably baptized when the whole family was baptized, okay? You guys were able to read those arguments. Here's what I want you guys to, be, to do just briefly for us. How might you respond to those three after you've read Grudem's, Grudem's outlined arguments? Uh, and if you didn't, we're going to find out really quickly um, because I'm going to be answering the questions, right? So how might you respond to... These, based on what you learned from Grudem's kind of counterpoints to those three, three things. We can start with number one. How would you respond to um, the point infants were circumcised in the Old Covenant? How might you, in what you learned from Grudem, respond to that assertion? I think that there's two things. Okay. It wasn't only Israel that was circumcised. Right. Any foreigner... Any stranger that dwelled among them were to be circumcised. Not only that, Paul makes the statement that not all of Israel is Israel. Mm-hmm. Uh, the circumcision was a sign of the covenant to those people, but it did not mean that all of them had saving faith. Mm-hmm. Okay. That would be my argument. Yeah, okay, good. I would, I would just uh, continue the line of thinking explains why it was that the first man was circumcised and it it basically asked the rhetorical question is this blessing you know the blessing for God's people is it only for the circumcised or also for the uncircumcised and Mm -hmm. he goes on to explain that uh, that Paul received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had before he was circumcised Mm -hmm. so if we if we just if we, if we agree with our Pado Baptist brothers and sisters that you know that baptism is parallel to circumcision, then in the spiritual sense you would say then baptism or Abraham's circumcision followed his faith. Mm-hmm. It didn't precede it. So. Okay. Good. It's a very good point. Others. Okay. 
So good, yeah, we, so we have good points there. It, it wasn't just Israelites that were circumcised, right? So uh, it was anybody, not just physical descendants of the people of Israel, but also those servants who were purchased that, uh, that were living among them. Um, so the presence or absence, like you were saying, uh, Mr. Emery, of inward spiritual life made no difference in the question of whether somebody was circumcised. Uh, so we should realize, as Grudem says, that circumcision was given to every male among the people of Israel, um, even though the circumcision is something inward and spiritual whenever we see in the New Testament, like you were just mentioning. Okay, so um, what about the, the second one? Baptism is parallel to circumcision. Okay. Yes, talk to me a little bit about that. Okay. So you don't have to be circumcised, you have to be baptized. Okay. You have to, be, you have, to have faith, right? And then baptism is a, a sign of that, okay? Yeah, I actually, so this is a, there's an interesting point here, because I, in a sense, I agree with that it is a parallel. I mm-hmm. think you see that the sign and seal is certainly a parallel of that. But I think about, uh, you know, they were strongly covenantal in mm-hmm. this perspective. And, uh, and, uh, and that I agree with them a lot, too. However, a covenant is made between people or between or, or between groups. Mm. So, in one sense, the circumcision was a covenant between God and a people group um, that was to be a, a person and his descendants, his physical descendants. Mm-hmm. So, in that sense, it makes complete sense to circumcise an infant who is part of this specific covenant agreement, which involves his direct descendants. Mm-hmm. Well, in the New Testament, in the New Covenant. Um, the, the covenant is between God and and His people, mm-hmm. and you can't be part of His people right. apart from faith. Right. And so I, I see it as a parallel, but it is you have to consider who the covenant is made for. Right. So it's a different kind of parallel. So it's not a physical parallel, like in terms of a physical descendant, but it is a parallel related to the people that God has made covenant with. And in the New Testament, it's not a it's not based on physical descent. Right. So our my kids are not guaranteed or will not be Christians because I'm a Christian, right? So they will be, they will be uh, Anglos, I don't know, they're Irish, whatever my, my lineage is, based on, I don't even, I'm a mix, so just like most all of us are, uh, I'm a mix. Um, so they're, they're that, based on descent, but they're not part of the covenant community because they're my children, okay? That's an, uh, um, that is something that God has done uh, in the hearts of people to be a member of um, the true covenant community, which is a member of the church. So um, this is something that God does by regenerating people and bringing them into that new community. And then baptism is a sign of them being part of that community. Okay, So an, an active part, a, a voluntary, spiritually, and saving part of that community. So um, that's what we, we deal with. It's certainly true that baptism is a sign of the entrance to the church, but it, this means... Uh, that it should only be given to those who give evidence of membership in the actual church. Again, we talked about it in terms of those who show evidence of having been part of the church should be baptized into, uh, in, in, in relation to being part of the covenant community. Okay, um, then what about the household baptisms? 
You guys want to talk with me about those for a minute? Do you see evidence for, do you see a strong argument there or is it kind of just a descriptive and not prescriptive? <laughs> yeah, it's, I'm still struggling with it because uh, uh, we came up, I came up from the Methodist Church. Okay. I came up from the Catholic Church. Hmm. So, in fact, one of our kids was baptized in both churches. Okay. So you figured that one out. Um, he needed a lot of time. <laughs> <laughs> um, <laughs> but to this point, you know, I can see where adults, uh, you know, a mom and a dad say, hey, we want to baptize our child. Mm. But we're not making, for me, it was a baptism of a, a promise to bring the child up to a point where it later that child has the chance to go have an immersion baptism. Mm. Right, so you're so what you're talking about is more of your your own as a parent yeah. committing to to raising your children. Yeah, so you're committing to do that. So dedication. Yeah, you're talking about like a dedication, right? Yeah. So right. So as we think about it in terms of we're just yeah, right. And the only thing that proves is that the, the parents were going to try and raise them up like them, and that's baptism. I find a lot of times it's splitting hairs, and I, I like to always say, is this what's going to keep you out of heaven or put you in mm, heaven? Sure. But um, there seems to be, you know, God said, or Jesus said, baptize. Mm. But he didn't say, don't do the kids, don't do this, don't do this. And it looks like, man, just like a lot of these arguments, we self-imposed our arguments to try and, well, we, don't, we disagree, and I understand we disagree. Right. I think there's points on both sides. But, sure. you know, circumcision was done. They were told by God you have to be circumcised. Yeah. Jesus told you you're supposed to baptize. So we baptize. Yeah. And I think they, you have good points there. And as we think about uh, Jesus does command us to baptize, right? So that's a, a very important thing that we, that we make sure that we understand. And whenever we deal with that, we want to take and remember the, the, the means. So he doesn't say we can't baptize children. He just sort of says, let's baptize them. Um, preaching the gospel as they hear and respond to the gospel, then we have a, uh, um, a directed means by which we can do that uh, and a mode by which he gives us. So whenever we see, um, see those things, while there can be uh, splitting hairs or, or being fine in our, in our discussion, um, on one side we could get into a position where it could be a really a challenging to a faith, right? So if somebody says, if my child's not baptized, in this particular area, then they can't be saved, right? So this is there is a there is a conferring There's of grace. Sure, yeah, understandable. And no matter how clear you make it, right? You're going to get. You're right. How many times have we seen it? You know, mm -hmm. the tangents that Christians go off and you're right. You know, drink yeah. Kool Aid or whatever. That's right. Yeah. yeah, and that's why we have to be really careful. Just yeah. to try to stay with the the center line of Scripture. Remember, we go all the way back to the. The, where is our authority? Uh, our authority is not in uh, councils and it's not in other external things. It's in the Word of God and God's Word. Uh, we want to we rightly interpret it and apply it as best we can uh, by, the, by the Holy Spirit. Um, and, uh, and part of that is, is trying to understand clearly. And we're thinking here of the, the household baptisms, that whenever we see it, um, oftentimes it is descriptive uh, not prescriptive, so it's not then go and baptize the whole household. It's just a description of what happened. And there could, be, there could be evidence that all of the children that were there in that house, if they had children, all came to saving faith at the same time, right? They could have. 
Um, they could have made a commitment to faith uh, right there. Uh, so we, we see that the, that the household in some way uh, received and, uh, and rejoiced in the Word of God and had faith in God. So it could be, um, could be that the entire household had individually come to faith in Christ. And that's what we see, right? So um, you know, Emery isn't baptized and then his whole family is baptized in response to your faith. They would have to be baptized additionally by their own commitment of faith, not just because of what Mr. Emery does. Um, so we do see this as, uh, as a description, not as something we say, okay, so the dad became a Christian, so we're baptizing everybody in the family because now they're all part of the covenant community. Um, and he, he goes on with additional arguments as to what, what does baptism actually do. So whenever we kind of think about what is the kind of the end game in this particular system um, as it relates to pedo-baptism, uh, what does baptism do? What does it actually accomplish? What benefit does it bring? Uh, he does mention the fact that Roman Catholics, uh, they, they answer the question very clearly, uh, that the, the answer is that it causes regeneration. Baptists uh, have a clear answer, that it symbolizes an inward regeneration that is then um, that is, uh, displayed outwardly through baptism. But he makes the point, and I think it's a good point, um, that paedo-baptists don't have a clear answer in this situation, right? They don't affirm regenerational baptism, right? So they're not saying that grace is confirmed, and they're not saying that it's just a symbol. They're saying that there's something more to it um, that is going to be happening later because they would say that infants don't display saving faith. So it is much more um, of a, a paedo-baptist understanding um, that, it's, that it is uh, a probability, or that, that there is a, maybe a higher probability that the children who are baptized as infants will come to faith. But again, that's, it's not a guarantee thing, right? So they're not looking at this and saying, because a child is baptized or sprinkled, then they will definitely become a Christian. It's more of a possibility. Yeah, James. Yeah, I just want to, this is something I looked into because I was uh, particularly interested in trying to understand the Cato-Baptist viewpoint because I just can't really wrap my mind around it. And, and I, think, I think to your point, the distinction is made in, in how we view the outcome of baptism. Because in the Westminster Confession, if you read the first bullet on baptism, you would, if, and that's the only one, the first paragraph, and that's the only one you read, you would think you are going to agree with everything else they're about to say about baptism. Because they do believe in baptism as a sign of, mm-hmm. regener- as a sign of regeneration. When they get to the infant baptism paragraph, it's very short, and it essentially says, if you remember back to when we talked about visible versus invisible church, baptizing infants is their entrance into the visible church. In essence, what you were just saying, it's just entrance into the church family, in a sense. And it's, so in that, in that way, it's kind of squishy. It's hard mm-hmm. to understand exactly what that does for a person, if anything. Um, but that's what they think of it as. It's, it would be improper to think that our Presbyterian uh, brothers and sisters believe in a regenerative. Yeah, so it's not that. It's much more, so the way I tem- tend to think of infant baptism in the life of a, a paedo-baptist would be much like we do a dedication service for for families, right? So uh, from our perspective, we are saying we are, de- we are dedicating to bring up this child in the nurture and admonition of the Lord in, in the faith family, right? They're not part of the church because they've not made, and there's no evidence that they are part of what the church is described as in the Bible. Uh, it is a collection of regenerate 
people, right? That's what the church is. Jesus has purchased them with his own blood. Our children as infants show no signs of that. There's no guarantee that they will ever come to no faith, come to Christ. But it means that we are going to uh, raise them in, in, that, um, in that setting, giving them opportunities to hear the gospel, praying that God would change their hearts. And then if he does, uh, then they would then be baptized as believers because that is the picture of what baptism is, is their death and their new life in Christ. So uh, while, it, while it can seem um, a little bit uh, monotonous to think, well, it's just, it's a word, and can we not just kind of move on with other things? There are uh, implications for us when we're, when we're thinking about uh, theology and when we're thinking about proper application of it in the life of a church. Um, it, is, it is important for us to be able to, to have a, a view on these things. Um, we also see um, the last two kind of points that he has there, the effects of baptism. Um, while, it does not, uh, while it does not actually cause anything to happen. He does say that there, uh, there are some ways in which it is a means of grace. Uh, and whenever he says that, he's not talking about like a saving grace or anything like that. It's just a means by which the Holy Spirit brings blessing to people, right? Whenever you see somebody get baptized, does it not excite your faith? Yeah, it does, doesn't it? It encourages you. It builds you up. It says, look what God's doing in the life of this person. The Spirit of God uses that not only to encourage his people, but also sometimes to, to convict people that are not believers, to say this is what it means to become a believer, to follow Jesus, is to die to yourself and be raised to walk with me. And this is a picture. So um, it, is, uh, it, is, it is a, God does use this. Again, if he instituted it, he didn't just institute it because he thought it was gonna be fun to see people get dunked under the water, right? Like he had a, a reason for why he chose uh, this means, this ordinance, and it is for his people uh, to be encouraged by, and it is also an act of obedience. Uh, the necessity of baptism. Um, this point that he's dealing with, it, the question he's trying to answer is, is it necessary uh, to be baptized to, uh, so that we can be sure that we're justified? Right? So um, the, the argument kind of goes, if somebody dies before they're baptized, are they still saved? Right? That's kind of the question he's trying to answer here. Um, can somebody die? Let's say they, you know, uh, you, you know, Kyle leads somebody to faith, you know, out in the parking lot, right? So he meets somebody out in the parking lot, leads them to faith here in just, you know, 30 minutes from now, and then that guy tragically dies on the way home, right? He hasn't had a chance, you know, there's no, we don't, we don't have any opportunity for him to be baptized. Is, is his faith, is he still saved? And uh, the argument that we see from Grudem and from Scripture is that if he, if he was justified, if his heart was regenerate, if he, had, if he was converted, then baptism uh, was not necessary for him to be justified. However, side point, if he just decides to go his whole life without being baptized, which is kind of the first step of obedience, the question is, is he, going, is he obedient? Has his heart been changed? If he's not going to do that in an active way, like, I'm never going to get baptized. You can't make me get baptized. I'm not going to do it, okay? Um, the evidence that Grudem gives is the thief on the cross, right? So he had never, he was never baptized. Uh, he never stepped foot in a church building, probably. He never read the Bible. Um, he, I'm sure, certainly he prayed while he was on the cross. Um, never took the Lord's Supper. He never did any of the things that we look at and say, well, that's evidence of somebody being a believer. And yet, Jesus says, um, today you will be with me in paradise. And so there was some confidence that he was going to be, that he was saved. Okay, so that is the, the descriptive evidence for us to say that it's, 
that, that if, even if somebody doesn't get baptized, it doesn't mean that they're not saved. However, we would say that people who are truly born again will want to be baptized, right? So that's, that's, that's a first step of obedience and faith uh, in, uh, in their lives, okay? Age for baptism. Is there a magic age? Um, no. Um, the, the most, uh, he gives the answer, and I think that this is a good answer. Uh, they should be old enough to give a believable profession of faith, you know? Um, here in the life of our church, we, we, uh, it's not like a hard and fast rule, but we tend to not baptize children that are less than five, right? That's kind of, again, it's not a rule, but it's a general principle um, that we, we think that that's a, you know, an age by which children can uh, ha- have a clear understanding and be able to walk through that um, as it relates to that. So we don't, we, don't uh, we, we have opportunities for people to learn and grow. Um, the last one, we only got 15 minutes to talk about the Lord's Supper, guys. <laughs> So we'll, we'll, all right, we'll talk about it. Um, We're going to talk about it as it relates to the meaning of the Lord's Supper. Um, The meaning, he gives us, uh, he gives us seven, seven points, and we're just going to kind of go through these. Um, Several things are symbolized and affirmed in the Lord's Supper. First, uh, Christ's death is symbolized in the Lord's Supper and affirmed. Uh, we see this in the passage, uh, 1 Corinthians 11, for as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So we are remembering um, Christ's death. Second is uh, we are remembering or symbolizing our participation in the benefits of Christ's death. Uh, In Matthew 26, he says, take, eat, this is my body. So we are individually uh, reaching out and taking the cup for ourselves we are proclaiming that we are indeed individually taking the benefits of Christ's death to ourselves. Um, third, there is spiritual nourishment. This is from John 6. This is a, a passage we, we went through not too long ago on Sundays. Unless you eat the flesh of uh, the Son of Man and drink His blood, you have no life in you. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I'll raise him up at the last day, for my flesh is food indeed and my blood is drink indeed. He eats my flesh and drinks my blood, abides in me, and I in him. As the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so he who eats me will live because of me. So just as ordinary food nourishes our physical bodies, the Lord's Supper nourishes our spiritual um, bodies, and it nourishes us spiritually um, and refreshes our souls. So uh, that, is, um, that is that. Again, we, we believe and hold to the fact that Jesus is not speaking of literally eating his flesh and his blood, um, but a spiritual participation in the benefits of the redemption he has earned on our behalf. Fourth, it signifies or shows us the unity of believers because there is one bread. We who are many are one body for we all uh, partake of the one bread. So it shows the unity that we have with one another as believers. Um, Fifth, uh, we see that Christ affirms his love for me uh, in, in the fact that I'm able to participate in the Lord's Supper. Uh, indeed, is that Christ invites us to come, which is a vis- vivid reminder and visual reassurance that Jesus loves us individually and personally. Sixth, uh, Christ affirms that all the blessings of salvation are reserved for me. When I come at Christ's invitation to the Lord's Supper, um, 
the fact is that he has invited me into his presence assures me that he has abundant blessings for me. And it's a foretaste of uh, the banquet that he has prepared for us in eternity. Seventh, uh, I affirm my faith in Christ. Um, we are proclaiming that our trust and our need is for Christ to forgive us of our sins and to give us life uh, to our souls. Um, we are, again, it's a, 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 mini, a declaration of our, our faith. We are remembering that. We are proclaiming that um, in the Lord's Supper. Then we get into the question of uh, how is Christ present in the Lord's Supper? Uh, this is, again, we have multiple views on this. Uh, the Roman Catholic view is uh, that of transubstantiation. Um, and according to this teaching in the Roman Catholic Church, in the Eucharist, the bread and the wine actually become the body and the blood of Jesus. Okay? This happens when the priest says, this is my body, during the celebration of the Mass. Uh, so at uh, the same time the priest says this, the bread is raised up and adored. This action of elevating the bread and pronouncing it to be Christ's body can be only performed by a priest. So the Eucharist is only served by priests, so not, no common people uh, perform this or give uh, uh, or or do this. Um, grace, again, according to the Roman Catholic teaching, is imparted to those present, same way by the work performed, um, not by the faith, um, but in this time, the body becomes uh, the the bread becomes his body, the, the wine his blood, and every time the sacrifice of Christ, in some sense, is repeated, um, and the the church is. Uh, uh, careful to affirm that this is a real sacrifice, even though it is not the same as the sacrifice that Christ paid on the cross. Okay, the the statement that we have um, as it relates to this that it is um, given as a propitiatory sacrifice. The sacrifice of the mass affects the remission of sins and the punishment for sins as a sacrifice of appeal. It brings about the conferring of supernatural and natural gifts. Okay, so um, in this way, um, the reality is if someone, a priest, was to drop part of the bread, it would be dropping the body of Jesus, right? The literal body of Jesus. And so uh, this is very protected and sacred. Um, that's why only priests are allowed to do these things, okay? Um, you, you guys were able to read as it related to some of the um, arguments against this and why we should perceive it as a symbolic Nature, again, he talks about the other I am statements that Jesus gives. Um, I am the true vine. I am the door. I am the bread that came down from heaven um, are all symbolically to be, to be understood symbolically, right? So Jesus is not a literal door. Like he doesn't become an actual door. Um, it's a symbol of, of, of what Jesus does um, or who he is. So the same is to be uh, interpretively for us uh, true of his discourse in Luke chapter in, in John chapter six, and in other places it relates to the, his blood being poured out, being a new covenant. Okay, um, then we have also uh, the Lutheran view, which is that Jesus is in, with, and under, or it's called consubstantiation. So that's the word, an, another word that was not in the book. Uh, consubstantiation that that Jesus is not uh, he is, doesn't become his the, the bread does not become his body but at the Lord's Supper he, his presence is in under and around so it's basically all over it uh, without it becoming it okay that's kind of the picture 
of, uh, of Lutheran uh, theology. Um, the physical body of Christ is present with the bread uh, and the Lord's Supper. So they don't get transformed, but they are present with the elements in some way, shape, or form. Okay? Um, whenever we see the rest of Protestantism is that it is a symbolic and spiritual presence of Christ. So it doesn't, the, 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 the bread and the wine do not change. Uh, they do not somehow contain the body of Christ. Rather, the bread and the wine symbolize the body and blood of Christ and give a visible sign of the fact that Christ himself was truly present uh, without being in the bread or becoming the bread, or the bread becoming his body. So this is the way in which uh, we see that, uh, at least um, biblically, uh, the way that we treat that here at Scotts Hill. Um, we also see the, the answers to the question, who should participate in the Lord's Supper? Who should participate in the Lord's Supper? Only those who believe in Christ should participate in it because it is a sign of being a Christian and continuing in the Christian life. So only those who believe in the Lord Jesus should participate. Uh, second um, participation uh, requirement are those who have examined their own lives. Uh, whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of profaning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a man examine himself and so eat the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment upon himself. Um, we also see um, in this, these are two pieces of, um, of, of requirement, I guess, as it relates to uh, partaking of the Lord's Supper. The other questions that we have, uh, who should administer the Lord's Supper? So from, from a biblical perspective, whenever we see in Scripture, there's no explicit teaching, right? So Paul or uh, Peter don't say, it is the, the job of the pastor or the deacon to hand out the ordinances or to administer them. Um, but there are principles to say we need to be wise and appropriate for the benefit of believers in the church to guard against the abuses. So a responsible leader should be uh, required. In the life of our church, our pastors are the ones that oversee and administer uh, the, the, um, the ordinance of the Lord's Supper. But it doesn't mean that other people can't pass it out. Right, so um, right now we use the little the little cups. Um, so everybody takes their own out of the out of the basket. We've we've had it where we pass it along. We've had it where we've we've handed it out individually as people came in. Um, but the um, the um, the actual ordinance itself is administered by one of our one of our pastors. Um, how often should we take the Lord's Supper? Again, one of those questions that is not given a, a prescriptive answer. Um, scripture does not tell us that we have to do it every week, uh, once a month, you know, once a quarter, um, once a year. There's no prescription that says you have to do it this many times um, a year. It's simply, Jesus tells us as often as you eat it, um, to remember him. So do this in remembrance as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup. Um, and also a reminder for us, he does deal with this a little bit as it relates to worship services. Uh, let all things be done for edification. Um, and, and 
seeking to be careful to make sure that we don't minimize what the Lord's Supper is um, so that we can rightly understand what we're doing as it relates to the Lord's Supper. So, baptism in the Lord's Supper um, in an hour. <laughs> you have four minutes. Um, let's pray, and then we can, if we have any questions, we can go from there, right? Lord, thank you for today. Uh, we thank you that you have uh, given us visible uh, reminders and symbols of uh, your work on the cross and what that means for us in the Lord's Supper, being able to see and to be able to reflect on your body being broken uh, and your blood being poured out, not, uh, not so that it becomes us, but so that uh, we could have life in you. This is the new covenant that you established for us to be able to, to be in a relationship with you uh, through faith. And then baptism being a picture of our death to sin and our, uh, our death to ourselves and our uh, being raised to walk in newness of life, being dead uh, in you and then also being raised uh, in you as well. So Lord, I praise you uh, that you've given us these signs, uh, these symbols um, that encourage us, that um, spur us on, and that help us to be reminded of your work in our lives. In Christ's name we pray, amen. Thank you for listening, and we hope that this teaching has enriched your understanding of God. If you found this teaching to be helpful, share it with your friends and family on social media and tag us at Scott's Hill. Till next time.